Well, good evening. For those of you who weren't here this morning, the scaffolding is for the sake of repairing plaster. Uh, so if you're wondering what's going on, that's the answer. For those of you watching at home, you may see all the pipes. It's to repair plaster here in the sanctuary. Well, we're continuing on in the, the Gospel of Matthew, and hopefully you've picked up, if you've been a part of this series, that we're going to apply each passage or, or each section of the book of Matthew in different ways, because there's different access points based on the content there in that section. And, and tonight, the, the main access point for us to, to really be a part of this story, because this is the living and abiding Word of God, and so we know that it is speaking to us tonight by the power of the Spirit, and the way for us to access this story is really at the very last verse that we have in your bulletin. You see in verse 10, uh, if you look at it, the, the people of Jerusalem ask a question about Jesus. They ask a very simple but profound question based on what they know about him, and, and they, they simply say, who is this? Who is this? And it appears to be a really honest question. And in many ways, it is the question that the world has been echoing ever since these people in Jerusalem asked the question. When people encounter Jesus, it's very natural, and perhaps you have asked this question, it's very natural to say, who is this? Who is Jesus? Well, people have responded in a variety of ways to this question. The miracles of Jesus Christ draw people in, and perhaps they're just amazed that somebody could do these miraculous things, that someone could heal people or or feed thousands of of people and the, the the miracles amaze some of us. Yeah. Perhaps the teaching of Jesus Christ motivates people. To people will say, you know, love your neighbor. This is a good teaching, and so people, when they talk about who is Jesus, when they think about the the the, the person of Jesus, they focus in on his teaching, and they're motivated by it. It's good to love people. Others might say they focus in on the death, the death of Jesus Christ, and it. It saddens them and perhaps makes them wonder why he had to die. But the identity of Jesus, this question, who is this? Not what are his miracles or why did he die or what should we do with his teaching or how do we spread his teaching even more? Those questions aside, the question for us tonight and the question of our passage really, and I think it's the question that the world is asking about Jesus when they encounter him, is who is Jesus? And in his identity, I believe, his identity is what confounds people when they encounter him. It confounds them. It confuses. He's called a stumbling block. People have stumbled over his identity for 2,000 years asking this question, who is this? Just the way the people in Jerusalem stumbled over his identity. When they respond to this question, who is this? In verse 11, uh, they say, a prophet, a prophet from from Nazareth. Well, of course, he is a prophet, but he is far more than a prophet. But despite the fact that they get the answer wrong or, or partially wrong, they only get partial credit, you might say, the fact that, that that is true, it is a still a very good question to ask, and it is a question that Jesus wants people to ask about him. Jesus wants people to ask, who are you, Jesus? And it's, the reason we know that is because in Matthew 16... He approaches his disciples. They are 12, and they're there at this place called Caesarea Philippi. They're not in Jerusalem. And some people are are starting to guess, who is Jesus? And he says, you know, who do people say that I am? And so they respond, 
You know, some people say that you're Elijah. Others say that you're John the Baptist. And Jesus looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? We know based on that, that Jesus wants us to ask this question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Who is he? Well, of course, Peter responds in Matthew 16, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to to Peter in that moment. He says, blessed are you, Simon. It was Peter's name, his other name. Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. See, Jesus wants people to ask, who is this? Because when they answer that correctly, Jesus says they are blessed and that they experience communion with God the Father. Blessed are you, he says, because my Father revealed this to you, Peter. And that's why it's good to ask the question, who is this? So if you're here tonight and you would not identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, you would not be a Christian or whatever language you want to use, you would say, I do not put my faith in Jesus Christ, I don't trust in him, but I'm here, and you are asking, who is this Jesus? That's actually a very good place to be. The very first step, actually, to answering that question is, is simply asking, who is Jesus? Approaching his revelation honestly and wanting to know who he is, asking, who is Jesus? It's a good question. But we're also going to see tonight in our passage that it's, it's not enough to merely ask that question. One must answer correctly. Well, this may seem rather obvious. You want to answer a question correctly. But it's not enough to merely be inquisitive or merely be curious. And though uh, our age may espouse the virtue of of question asking or or humility, uh, it is not good to never make a conclusion about Jesus Christ. In fact, it is good to make a conclusion about who he is. And this may seem rather obvious. But we must answer the question, who is Jesus? And the only way to actually answer this question correctly, what I believe we're going to see in our passage tonight, the only way to answer this, the only way to know who Jesus is, is to know first that you need him. That's my main point for tonight. My main point that I hope you walk away with is that the only way to know who Jesus is, is to know that you need him. Let me try and show what I'm saying by walking us through this passage this passage. Now, for those of you who remember, if you've been a part of the the Matthew series before, uh, Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem from Galilee for the last four chapters or so. And now he is with a crowd and the next stop is Jerusalem. Before he makes his way up the hill to Jerusalem, though, he he has to leave Jericho. And the first part of our passage tonight is is focused on his, his departure from Jericho. That's verses 29 through 34. And it tells us what happens as he's leaving one town on his way to Jerusalem. And then verses 1 through 10, the, the second section that we're going to look at, uh, shows us his entrance into Jerusalem. And so that just gives you the, the basic structure. He's been on his way to Jerusalem. He's been predicting that he's going to die. He's been telling his disciples at least three times, you might even say four times, that he is going to Jerusalem to die and to rise again. He has said it over and over and over again. He predicts it. And he explains to them why. He says, the son of man, that's a name that he has for himself. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to serve others. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then our passage tonight shows us him leaving Jericho, a town, and entering Jerusalem. Now that gives you the the, the orientation, the the, the movements of the passage from a a structural standpoint, you might say, so that you're, you're caught up. But theologically, there's a lot more going on than merely an exit from one town and an entrance into another. See, 29 through 34, this first section, leaving Jericho, reveals a very important truth about our relationship with God. And that truth is this, that only the humble see Christ's true identity. Only the humble see Christ's true identity. That's 29 through 34. We're going we're gonna to work through that. And then a 1 through 10 shows us a second point that's corollary. It's that Christ's identity is seen by his humility. The first part says only the humble see Christ's true identity. Only the humble can see Christ's true identity. And in the second half of our, our, our passage tonight, Christ's identity is seen by his humility. Well, let's work through this to, to prove that this is what's going on. Well, the, the, the exit out of Jericho, 29 through 34, if you're following along in your bulletin or if you, if you have your Bible open, the exit out of Jericho is where we see that the humble are the only ones who can see Christ's identity. And this section is really driven by the characters. The characters in this passage drive the narrative. Now, the, 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 there's basically three characters, you might say, or, or, or four. Um, first, we learn there's a great crowd, but they function as a, as a unit. And so there's the crowd. And then we also learn that, that there are two blind men sitting near the road. Remember, we're on the way out of Jericho. There's two blind men sitting near the road. And then finally, of course, Jesus. Jesus is in the story. Well, Jesus is walking out of town. He's firmly resolved that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And the two blind men realize that Jesus is there. Now, presumably, they heard he was coming and maybe they know his reputation. Jesus has been ministering for three years. He's been teaching people in in elaborate ways, but also in one-off ways. He's been teaching and he's been doing miracles. He's been healing and they know who he is. And we see that by based on what they say, they start crying out. And you, you can't really blame these two. They, they have nothing to lose. They've been radically humbled in their life. And most likely, even though it wouldn't be a true biblical concept, they probably had a lot of shame associated with their blindness. They, they probably thought that they were blind because of their sin or perhaps because of the sin of their parents. That was a a pop pop culture teaching that was going on in the time of Jesus around suffering. Uh, It's because of your sin or because of someone else's sin that you are suffering. And these two men perhaps had had understood and, and believed that that was the case. Well, Jesus disproves that in the book of John. He says that it is not because of sin that people are blind. It is not because of sin that people have physical suffering in their life. Some sort of disability is not because of sin. Jesus makes that explicitly clear with the blind man in the book of John. But these two men probably had thought of their blindness through that lens. Now, maybe that's speculation, but it's, it's probably the case. And nevertheless, in light of their knowledge of themselves and their knowledge of, of Jesus, they call out to him in a very specific way. Now, first, if you look at the passage, they call him Lord. Now, 
This perhaps only means master or sir. You know, something like sir. Sir, may I get your attention? Something to that effect. But it could also have the, the overtones of the fact that Jesus is slowly revealing more and more that he is the creator Lord. He is Yahweh. He does that by stilling the sea. These are the ways that he is revealing that he is the Lord, that is the Lord Yahweh. But we, we don't know exactly whether they just mean sir or if they mean something like Yahweh. But then they reveal more of their knowledge of, the, of Jesus. They ask for mercy. See, they do not begin the request asking for sight. They begin the request asking for mercy. And not only that, they don't just ask for mercy. They call Jesus the son of David. Now immediately wonder, or at least I wonder, how did they know that he was the son of David? That is, how did they know that Jesus traced his lineage back to the great king of Israel, David, the, the, the one who came from the line of Judah, the great king, the one who God promised that he would always have an heir on his throne. And in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says to David, he says, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. And I will be to your son a father, and he shall be to me a son. It's this covenantal promise. It's where we get the idea of a Davidic covenant. The Lord promised David that he would always have a son on his throne. That's part of the reason why they're crying out that he is the son of David, because Israel, Jerusalem, they were longing for a good king to return. Well, other promises added to the idea that, that the son of David was a good thing, someone that you should look forward to. You might remember at Christmas you hear about the son of David. Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 predicts the following about an heir from David. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, many other passages could be added about the promises made to David in the Old Testament. Because of that promise, people in Israel were always looking for the son of David. They always wanted the son of David to show up, the true son of David, because he was going to be a good shepherd. He was going to shepherd the people. He was going to bind up their wounds. It would be the time that the Lord returned in a climactic fashion to the temple, to Jerusalem, in a way that the people knew God is in our midst. That's what David's return meant. And we know that because Ezekiel, another Old Testament prophet, says the following. This is the Lord talking. He says, I will be the shepherd of my people. This is the Lord talking. I will be the shepherd of my people, and I will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured. Do you hear that part especially? I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Now, how is he going to heal his people? This is the promise of Ezekiel, that the Lord will return someday. How is he going to heal his people? 
Well, a few verses later in that same chapter, chapter 34, this is how he's going to do it. He says, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So what you can see, hopefully, hopefully you're convinced, is that by saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, by crying out and calling him son of David, these two blind men were very knowledgeable of the Old Testament. They knew God promised a king, and they knew he would come from David, and they knew he would establish peace, and they knew he would bring healing. You saw that in the Ezekiel quote, that he would bring healing. What are these men defined by? Their blindness. They're defined by their blindness. They would have been ostracized in society. They would have had to sit by a road begging. They would have been thought that they were cursed or that perhaps their parents were cursed. They had shame on them. They knew they needed God to intervene in their life in a miraculous way. They knew they needed healing. But they don't appeal to Jesus in some sort of entitled fashion in light of all of these promises. You see, they could have said, hey, uh, it's been about 400 years. Where have you been, God? It's about time that you showed up. You promised us that you would. And we're just simply taking you at your word, Lord. What did we do to deserve this anyway? What did our parents do to deserve this anyway? They could have appealed to Jesus as though they were entitled in some fashion. It's time you come through on those promises, God. Imagine if that's what they had called out as Jesus was on his death march. Uh, Sir, you owe us. No. No. These two men not only know scripture, that is the promises of God regarding David, but they know something about themselves. They know they deserve nothing from God. And look at the verb, they plead. Look at the way they talk to King Jesus, the son of David. What do they say to him? Not, you owe us one. They say, have mercy on us. That is, we don't deserve anything from you. Even though you've promised us these great and precious things, we deserve none of it. See, they knew themselves, both through their blindness and through the scriptures, I believe they had come to an accurate knowledge of who they are before God. They knew their need of Jesus, which enabled them to identify who he actually is. They knew their need of Jesus so that they could then actually state accurately who he actually is. They knew we desperately need that man to intervene in our life and we don't deserve anything that he offers us. That status, that state that they learn from the Old Testament, which we know from their knowledge of the son of David, and they learn through their own frailty. Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. They had been taught to number their days through their blindness. It would have revealed to them that they were creatures, that they were not in control of their lives. And that knowledge of their frailty, their creatureliness, combined with the majestic knowledge of God that they had from all of these Old Testament promises, revealed to them truth about themselves. They needed Jesus. 
That's the most important truth that you need to come to if you're going to actually see Jesus clearly. The way you know who Jesus is by learning of your need for him. The way you know who he is by learning of your need for him. It's demonstrated beautifully by these two men in contrast to the the two disciples, James and John, that we looked at last week. You may remember, you may not, you may not have been here, whatever it is. James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, you know, top four at least, right? If you're doing a ranking. Peter, Andrew, James, John, that's got to be like right there at the top. But their mother comes to Jesus and asks if it's okay if her two sons sit on Jesus' right hand, on his left hand, in his eternal kingdom. They ask for greatness. They ask for honor. They ask for glory. Jesus deflects their question. If you you go back and read it, you can see he kind of dismisses the question, the desire, and instead promises them that they would suffer promises them that they would drink the cup of wrath that he would drink by following him. In contrast to that, however, these two blind men, they don't reach out to Jesus and say, Jesus, um, when are we going to get our glory? You owe us. Uh, Can we sit maybe behind you? If James and John are on the right and the left, those seats are called. Could we sit at least near you? Could we sit next to James? Could we sit next to John? We understand there's seats of honor. Could we get one of the close ones? No, these men know things that James and John don't know. These men know things about Jesus that James and John have yet to learn. They would learn those things, of course, through suffering. But these men have suffered and they have learned of their need for Jesus, which enables them to actually know who he is. Only the humbled can see Jesus clearly. Only the humbled can actually see that they need someone to die for their sins. Only the humbled can see that they need to cry out for mercy. Only the humbled know to say, you are king and we don't deserve anything you offer us. But in your mercy, in your mercy, would you do something for us? They both know that he is powerful and merciful, which emboldens them to actually ask him for something. They know their need of Jesus, and therefore they are willing to ask him for something great. They know their need of Jesus, which enables them to answer the question, who is this? And they say accurately, it is the son of David, it is the king, and he is merciful. They know these things by their knowledge of God that's revealed through the Old Testament scriptures and through their own frailty, through their own suffering, through their own knowledge that someday they would not be alive. They knew that they needed Jesus, which enables them to actually answer the question correctly, who is Jesus? This is our first and primary point, and I hope hope that you're convinced of it based on the way Jesus treats Jesus. These men, but let's see how the narrative unfolds. They're crying out. But then in verse 31, the crowd, you know, this crowd thinking that they're on their way for the triumphal entry when Jesus is going to conquer Rome. They're on their way to that. And so the crowd says, hey, quiet down. Quiet down. You know, we're on our way to something exciting. We're on our way to the victory march. Quiet down. 
they say. They rebuke them. But it only emboldens them even more. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, they cry out again. And so Jesus stops, verse 32. He stops. And before he speaks, if you look at 32, it says he called them. He called them. So you can only assume that the men hear Jesus talking and, and they stand up and, and they, they, may, they, they must know the direction to go, but they don't know exactly where Jesus is because they're blind. But perhaps the crowd parts and they start fumbling their way to get to the son of David, the one who just summoned, or maybe somebody puts their hand on his shoulder and walks them to Jesus. However it is, they get there and Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? The same thing he said to the other two. When, they asked to, when the mother asked for something, what do you want me to do for you? But what do they say? Lord, let our eyes be opened. See, at that point, Jesus is in many ways testing their knowledge of his power. And they know that he can heal because he is the son of David. He is the long-awaited king who would bind up the sheep, who would bring healing. They know that he has been doing these healings. And so they ask for something miraculous because they know his identity. And then we see now in reflection, we see perfectly who Jesus is in light of verse 34. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. Their eyes are probably closed. Jesus reaches out and touches their eyes. And when they open their eyes, What they saw with their hearts, they now see with their eyes. The son of David, the merciful one. Their need enabled him to to see him clearly. And now, now his miracle enabled them to see him physically. Immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. If you are asking the question, who is Jesus? And I hope you are. I hope everyone in this room is asking, who is Jesus? whether you've been following him and you want to know more of him, know more of his character, know more of his love, know more of his grace, know more of his forgiveness, know more of his mercy, if that's where you're at, I hope you're asking, who is Jesus? And the way you're answering that question is by saying, because I need more of you. I need more of you, and so I want to know more of you. The answer that Jesus will give you is merciful. He will look at you in your state and he will have compassion on you or pity on you. It is not that you are pitiful, but rather that his heart is compassionate and he moves towards those who approach him with a knowledge of their need. If you haven't ever acknowledged your need of Jesus, if you've never said, yeah, I need Jesus, I need mercy, I need God, I need forgiveness, if you've never said any of those things, then this will never make sense to you. But if you're aware of your, your creatureliness, the fact that you are going to die someday, if you're aware that your conscience is uneasy, that you do things and you don't even know why you do them, but then you feel guilty. You do things and you know why you do them and you feel guilty. Any of that that's going on in you, a knowledge that you're going to die, or a knowledge that you don't even meet the own standard in your own hearts, any of those things, if you are feeling that, that is you feeling your need for Jesus. That's what you're feeling. You're feeling your need for Jesus, and you should respond to that. You should respond to that by saying, who is this? And then you should ask him for mercy. You should ask him for mercy.
Because in your humble states, you can see him clearly. In your pride, in your health, in your wealth, maybe in your achievements, in all the things that perhaps you've done, and probably lots of good things, it's very difficult to see Jesus. Uh, But in your frailty, in your blindness, in your uneasy conscience, in your anxiety, in your awareness that you're going to die someday, that's you feeling your need. And the way to respond to that is to cry out for mercy and say, Son of David, King, uh, I need your mercy. And he will respond to you the way he responds to these two men. He will look at you and he will offer you forgiveness. And he will offer you healing. He will heal your troubled soul. And someday he will heal your body, either in this life or definitely the next. That's what he offers to all who look to him and say, Lord, have mercy. But only the humble can actually see him clearly. That's our first point. Only the humble can see him clearly. Our second point is that it's only through Christ's humility, only through Christ's humility that we see his identity clearly. And we're not going to work through every verse in this section, but the main action is him entering Jerusalem and he sends his disciples to go get a donkey, to go get even a colt of a donkey, a young donkey, and to bring him that donkey so that he can ride into town on a young colt who's never been ridden on before to illustrate not his power, but his humility. A king would ride in on a stallion. A king would ride in on a triumphant horse. Jesus rides into Jerusalem where he will do battle with sin and death on a donkey. Now this is where we see the nature of his kingdom, which we've been studying for the last weeks and months. The nature of his kingdom is such that the last shall be first. He illustrates that here by riding to his coronation on a colt, a weak, unpowerful creature. It confirms the prophecy of Zechariah and it demonstrates his weakness, that he's come as a human, come willing to die, come willing to offer forgiveness for sins, demonstrated through this picture of him riding through town on the colt of a donkey. Well, the crowd, they respond as, as you see, verse 7 and 8, they put cloaks on the donkey and then, and then they put cloaks on the road and they put branches on the road and they're thinking that this is perhaps a, a triumphant moment. And they're saying, Hosanna, which means Lord, save us. Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And, and maybe these are, are some of his followers from Galilee, so they know some things about him. Or maybe these are people from Jerusalem. Whatever it is, It caused a stir. It caused a great stir. And the city, as you see in verse 10, was stirred up saying, who is this? Now, we conclude where we began. This is a good question. This is the right question. This is the question that Jesus wants everyone in the world to ask. Who do you say that I am? 
And he wants us to respond in a very specific way. I've seen through your humility, Christ, that you are a gentle and loving and kind king. One who dies for his people instead of sending them into battle to die for him. I've seen who you are. And because I've seen your mercy and your compassion, I'm going to take a step of faith and cry out to you, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. When you hear him say to you, who do you say that I am? You should respond, you are the merciful king. So have mercy on me, son of David. And if you haven't asked, who is this? Then I encourage you to ask that. To ask him, who are you? To recognize your need and then to see that he can meet every need that you bring to him. Every need. Some needs will be met in the next life. New bodies, perhaps new eyes. But every need that you have can and will be met by him. But if you do not recognize your need, you will never answer the question correctly. Who is this? I encourage you tonight, be like these two blind men. Be like these two blind men who know they need Jesus so that you can see him clearly and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we rejoice that you sent a merciful, compassionate Savior. We ask that you would send your spirit to enable us to see him clearly, that we might plead for his mercy as he wants us to do. And we ask this in his name. Amen.